You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. But let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and read this whole section. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's important to recognize that all of us at some point in our life, whether we were little kiddos or adults when we met Jesus, we all at some point lived in the passions of our flesh. doesn't matter who the person is and whether you believed in Jesus at vacation Bible school when you were six years old. At some point, you lived in the passions of your flesh. And because of that, you were dead in your sins at that moment. No, no questions asked. So we all fall under this. Among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, perhaps two of the most important words in all of the Bible, but God, (laughs) amen? Left to our own devices, it ain't going to turn out very well, but God. But God, verse 4 says, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and saved, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." One of the things that we talked about when we jumped into this, the, the letter of Ephesians was sort of the, the purpose and, and outline of the letter in terms of the first half and the second half. The first half being very much about how it is that we're saved, what it is that, that gained for us God's grace in our life, how salvation occurred through Jesus, and then the second half of the letter, as a result of our salvation, how it is that we're supposed to live, what it's supposed to look like for us to be followers of Jesus. And so it's good to know that the, the, the letter is split up into those two halves. But the overarching theme that Ephesians, and quite frankly, every other book of the Bible, every other letter in the New Testament, that every other, all other subjects come under the umbrella of is this, that everything is about Jesus. If, if someone wants to know what the Christian faith is all about, it might seem simplistic to answer this way, but the truth is, it's, it's about Jesus. It's not necessarily about the end of the world. It's not necessarily about making the world a better place right now. It's not necessarily about your life becoming better than it was before you knew Jesus. Now, all of those things are in play, All of those things happen and are true in the sense of your life will be better spiritually, eternally, if you know Jesus versus not knowing him. 
This world will be a better place if people were all Christians living after the way of Jesus. This world would be a lot better place. The end of the world in terms of when you die and and enter into eternity or Christ comes back to set up his kingdom eternally, you're going to want to know him. Everything is about Jesus. And not just our standing or our relationship to him, but him. He's the thing that's the most important. He's the thing that everything else revolves around, if you, if you will. Now, there's a phrase and an idea here that Paul has used already twice in, the, in his letter. Let me read verse 10. Pardon me, I'm going to read verse 8, 9, and 10. I'm going to show you a contrast that Paul makes in this statement. And then I'm going to show you a word or a concept that he's already used twice. Verse 8 says, Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God places salvation into humanity in such a way that it is all reliant upon him. We have nothing to do with salvation. In the sense that, We have done nothing, we have earned nothing, there's nothing about us and the achievements that we have as humans that puts us in a position to where God looks at us and says, you're right just the way you are. You're fine as you are. See, this is one of the concepts that the world doesn't get. A lot of times people, when, when asked about heaven, asked about eternity, hey, uh, do you, when you die, are you, do you believe in heaven and hell and where, which one do you think you're going to go to? Most people would answer, well, if, if God's a fair God, if God is, is a good God, then he'll know that I'm basically a good person. And that outside of the knowledge of Jesus, because I'm basically a good person, that would mean that I deserve heaven. That is the conception of a lot of people. But the reality is, what scripture tells us, again, If we've sinned at any point of our life, which Paul just told us at the beginning of chapter 2, we've all lived in the passions of our flesh. We've all followed after the things that we thought were good, but were actually in opposition to God. So we're all guilty of sin. And the moment you and I are guilty of sin, there is nothing good in our life. There's nothing good enough to counteract that offense against God. And so salvation, you and I getting to receive that inheritance that we've talked about by Jesus from Jesus being our big brother and the fact that he, the oldest son, gets all the inheritance from the father and that we get to also partake of those things, it's only because of our salvation. It's only because God says, you get to receive these things by my grace. Here's how that works. Jesus dies on the cross, buried, resurrects, And if you believe in that, if you put your trust and faith and surrender yourself to him and his authority because of his crucifixion and resurrection, you now get welcomed into the family of God. You now get to receive all of those blessings. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul says in verses 8 and 9 that our salvation is a gift of God, right? By grace, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, though, listen, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, look at the next next three words, for good works. This is critically important. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, 
We are not saved by our works. There's nothing that we've done that earns our salvation. But here's the thing. When we are saved, we have been saved for good works. That, we, gotta, we, gotta, we can't put the cart before the horse, right? This is the important thing. You can't do enough good works to get to heaven. You can't do enough good works to get saved. But when you humbly submit to Jesus and you are saved, you receive salvation by believing in his death and resurrection, your purpose, your trajectory, where you're supposed to go after that is good works. That's the, that's the order of things. First you're saved, then you go to good works, not good works and then you're saved, right? There's an old saying that says this, you can't clean a fish before you catch them, right? Pretty true, right? Fishes in the water, you can't clean them up and make them look all good and ready to present for dinner until you actually catch them. You have to have them in hand first. The same is true about salvation. You can't clean a fish before you catch them. First, you gotta have, God has to have possession of you. He has to have ownership of, his, of your life, which you have to submit to. You have to give to him. And then God will begin cleaning you up, if you will, if you understand that. Now, here's the idea here, here's the idea that Paul has already talked about twice. Take a look back in uh, chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul uses this, this concept or this idea in verse 11. And I'll read it here. He says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been, mark the word, predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We talked about that last week a little bit on Wednesday night, but here's the idea of predestination. Now, there's this big debate within the Christian, at least the evangelical tradition, the Protestant tradition. There's this big debate about how salvation works. There's words that Paul uses in his letter to the Romans like election, right? Foreknowledge, predestination. And, and there's this big debate about like how it is that some people are saved and other people are not saved. Did God choose some and not choose others? Because the language of Romans sure makes it sound like that, that, that God said, I choose some and not others. But here's the difference in regard to, to talking about election and salvation and how they actually work together and they sort of confound or confuse our feeble little human minds. We're not able to conceive of all of these mysteries necessarily, but we try our best. What we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is that God created all of humanity with the purpose of looking like Jesus. That's the purpose of his creation. That from the very beginning, Adam and Eve the purpose of humanity was to be like Jesus, to be in fellowship with God, to live in perfect harmony with God, to be sinless. That was the purpose. That's what God predestined. That's what he determined beforehand in his creation was that humanity would be perfect in all ways so that they could walk with him and have fellowship with him just like Adam and Eve, right? What's the problem with that? Humanity fell. Humanity sinned. Sin enters the world. Pride, arrogance, enters in disobedience, enters into the world and, 
and, and fractures that relationship with God to the point where we can't be in fellowship because of our sin. But that doesn't change God's predestination. It doesn't change his purpose for humanity by any stretch. In fact, what we find is that when we fast forward the story all the way to Jesus, who is perfect and who is the image and the model for us of what God purposed our lives to be, what we see is that not only are our lives, like Paul says in Romans 8.29, we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that apart from our sin, what God wants us to do is basically mold ourselves around the image of Jesus. And as a result of that, as a result of becoming like Jesus by believing upon him, his sacrifice, then we, then we get to receive this inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance which God predestined. He determined beforehand that we would receive this inheritance if we believed upon Jesus. Now, Paul uses the same idea, the same concept in Romans cha- or in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Again, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. You could also use the word predestined there, that we should walk in them. Now, here's why this is important. The concept of our salvation being apart from our works, simply a gift of God by his grace through our faith in Jesus. That's an important theological concept. That's a practical reality. In fact, that was what caused what what was called the Great Reformation in 1517. Martin Luther and and, uh, the rejection of the Roman church and uh, requiring any additional activity or, or behaviors in addition to our faith, uh, Martin Luther looked at it and just said, that doesn't match up with, with, with the testimony of Scripture. Scripture says it's by faith alone that we're justified. It's by faith alone that we're saved. It's God's grace alone. There's nothing else that puts us in God's good graces in regard to salvation. Now, since that time, the history of the Protestant church has stressed the importance of the fact that we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, so that we can't become arrogant, so that we can't point to ourselves and go, look at how great I am. Of course I'm going to heaven. Of course God loves me. Look at how how much money I give him, or look at how many good things I do for the Christian community. No, our salvation is simply a gift of God so that no one can boast. But here's the thing, as with all human and man uh, or, or human perspectives on things. I said last week that one of the paradoxes of understanding and knowing God is that oftentimes in Scripture, God is not black or white in the sense of one way or another way. Oftentimes, God is not yes and no, but he's both and. Why is that true? Because God is so much smarter beyond our understanding that when you and I want to say, well, God, is the answer yes or no to this? Oftentimes, it, it, the answer is neither. It's, it's both, right? And that's a hard concept. I get that. But as we walk through this, I hope you'll, under, you'll understand what I'm saying. Under the Protestant Reformation, the idea of salvation by grace alone, no works at all, has become so stressed that oftentimes within the Christian tradition, one of the negative impacts of that is that many Christians don't put a premium on or stress the importance of 
the good works that result from our salvation that we've been predestined for. This is what Paul says. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this was an issue very early on in the church. And here's how I know that to be true. Mark down James chapter 2. By all accounts, most scholarship would put the letter of James as the first documented writing of the New Testament. That somewhere in the, 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 the 10 years after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended, somewhere 40 to 44 AD, the Apostle James, who was the Bishop of Jerusalem, he was the overseer of the church at Jerusalem, wrote this letter. And it's, it's obvious by what he's writing that this must have been an issue early on in the church. That as salvation in Christ was proclaimed, this good news, this gospel, that there was a counter behavior or counter activity that needed to be addressed. Look at what James says in James chapter 2, verse 14. Again, one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, Someone could read that and go, oh, Paul and James are contradicting each other. Paul says salvation has nothing to do with works. James is saying that if you have faith without works, that that faith is dead. So that means that must mean that, that what James is saying is that faith and works combine to provide salvation. That's not what James is saying. Let's continue on. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. That's the key phrase if you, under, if you want to understand this section. The second half of verse 22. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is what James is explaining, and perhaps it's language that's challenging for us to, to process and understand. But what he's saying is this. If someone were to claim that they have faith in Jesus, they believe in Jesus, but the rest of their life didn't prove that, didn't actually show that they believed in Jesus, they weren't operating in the good works that they were predestined for, like Paul just told us in Ephesians chapter 2, then the faith that they say they have is actually dead. That their faith is worthless without proving it by their works. Not that their faith and works are combined for salvation, but that their faith unto salvation 
produces good works in their life. And here's the reality. We have, to, we have to process this and we have to understand this. Not for the purpose of judgment on anyone, not for the purpose of pointing fingers at anyone, but for knowledge of who's truly in the faith. Who are we in fellowship with? I've met so many people that in conversation when they find out I'm a pastor or that I'm a Bible guy or I'm a Christian or whatever, it's like, well, yeah, I believe. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went to camp when I was a kid or I did Young Life when I was in high school or whatever. And, but you stop and, and rightly, you look at their lifestyle and you're like, really? You, you believe, huh? That's, that's why you're out every weekend and drinking a little too much and running around and doing some things you shouldn't be doing or saying some things that are questionable at best. That's not judgment for the sake of, hey, I'm so holy and you're not. It's holding ourselves to the accountability of what God says he predestined us for. He created us to look like Jesus. And he saved us, not because of us, but because of him, so that we can then become to look more and more like Jesus by doing the good works that Jesus did. And James says that if someone claims to have faith, but their life doesn't look anything like Jesus, doesn't actually follow that they're actually saved. That's a scary thought. And that's something that is a challenge to all of us to say, is my life through my behavior, through my pursuit of the good works that God has called me to, is my life actually a part of the kingdom? And far too many people in cultures and society that value independence forget that we are called to this accountability, that we are under the covering of this authority that says God purchased you, Jesus himself purchased you with his blood. You are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus paid with his blood to take ownership of your life. You don't get to pick and choose now to say, God, I'll take salvation and eternity with you, but while I'm here on earth, I'll do whatever the heck I please. We don't get to do that. We don't get to separate those two things. God, I want eternity. I want salvation. I want to be with you for eternity. God says, awesome. It's yours. It's a free gift. I love you, and I'll give that to you. But here's what the rest of your life needs to look like. You need to follow me. You need to obey me. You got to do the things that I've prepared you for. I determined this long time ago before ever you were ever even a zygote, before you were ever even a twinkle in the eye of your parents. Like, this is what I prepared you for. So walk in this way. Do these things. It's important for us to, to take that in and to understand again that it's not for the purpose of judgment, but for the purpose of accountability that we would look at Jesus and say, is that how my life looks? You know, Jesus actually explains this in part in uh, the gospel according to John. Mark down John chapter 6, I'll read it to you. John chapter 6, I believe, in fact, do mark that down. If you have time this week, read through John chapter 6. I think John chapter 6 might be one of the top five sections of scripture for us as believers. I, I think it's that important that we read through it and meditate on it and understand it. Ask God for wisdom in it. Jesus has just provided the, that miracle of uh, feeding the 5,000, um, five loaves and, and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. People are amazed. Right after that, he walks on the water, freaks out the disciples, and then he says this in John chapter 6, verse 22. It says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So obviously, somehow, it's weird that Jesus is back with his disciples when he didn't go with them in the first place. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Here's the question. This is the big question. God, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? God, what am I supposed to, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? What job? Who do I marry? Where do I move to? This state's crazy. Should I go somewhere else? Like, like here, what should I be doing to do the works of God? God, you, you tell us that you've predestined us. You've created us for good works. and You've created good works for us to do. What are those good works? Give me a list. You've heard me say this a bunch of times. Boy, wouldn't it just be easier if God just gave us a list of things and said, check these things off, and then you're all good. Hey, guess what he did? It's called the Ten Commandments. Yeah, he gave us a list. There's a, it's called the Big Ten, right? Exodus chapter 20, you go ahead and read that, and you go ahead and, and, and be like the Israelites and look at that list and go, well, sure, we'll do that. Have no other gods before you? Number one, of course, no other gods. Then there's this story about a golden calf, like, and they're worshiping it, right? Honor your father and your mother, and it'll go well with you in the land that you live in. Yeah, but my mom and dad are annoying. I just, I can't handle them sometimes. And so, eh, I don't know about honoring them, right? Don't covet the thing that your neighbor has. Yeah, but theirs is better than mine. Listen, just the top 10 alone, right? Like, even just the first two of the top 10, right? We fail at. God did give us a list. And, and if we think that that's an easier way to live, go for it. Like I've said before, there's these people who, who do these challenges of like the year of living biblically where they try and fall all, follow all of the Mosaic law, all 613. Listen, you can't get through a day in America without breaking one of the commandments, let alone one of the other ceremonial or religious or health laws. It just doesn't work. And God knew that. That's why he gave us Jesus. That's why grace becomes one of the greatest gifts that we could ever receive is that it has nothing to do with us, Right? But here is the work that Jesus says we're supposed to do. What must, we be, what must we do to be doing the works of God, they asked. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If you want to do good work, if you want to embody and embrace the good works that God has predestined for you to do, it begins and ends with believing upon Jesus. Now, it'd be really nice if after the fact, I could, I could tell you, okay, now here, when you believe upon Jesus, here's the next list, right? So, okay, we'll take salvation, but then give us a list. 
How many times a month do I have to go to church? How much money do I have to give to, to God? Uh, you know, how nice do I really have to be to the people that annoy me, right? Don't I get some sort of pass or leeway in those things? Like, I'll forgive certain things in certain people, but I ain't forgiven this thing, right? Like, God, you've got grace for all of those things, right? And it'd be really nice, and I'm sure there's, there's some good efforts made to go, yeah, well, actually, you should pray, and you should give, and you should, like that whole series we did on what it looks like to be a part of the church, how, how it is that we're Christians, not just who, who we are, right? And that's fine, that's good. But the reality is that because God created us in Christ Jesus, Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, he created us in Christ Jesus for the works that he determined beforehand, it begins and ends with Jesus. Everything is about Jesus, We've been predestined to be conformed to his image. Now, Jesus speaks about this as well in terms of works in other sections of the gospel. Take a, a, uh, mark down Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Famous scripture, but it, it comes with a cost. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 14, says, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Matthew 5, 16, In the same way, let your, shine, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does that scripture imply? Let me read it again. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It means that we're doing good works. <laughs> it means that when we receive the light of Christ, the knowledge of Jesus, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand who Jesus is, that the thing that we're going to do after that is good works. It, it, that's, that's just a part of the Christian life, good works, right? And so obviously the natural question is, okay, then what are these good works? Fine, believe in Jesus. That's the work of God. I get it. Fine, let my light shine. Make sure that I'm doing good works. What is the good work that I'm supposed to be doing? I'm not trying to be coy. I'm not trying to be, you know, like, oh, he didn't study this part, so he's just making it up as he goes. No, but mark down Colossians chapter 3. Mark down Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul would say to the Colossians, and whatever you do in word or deed, what are the behaviors? What are the works? What is it? Define for me what it is that I'm supposed to be doing after I've believed upon Jesus. Well, Paul would say, whatever you do. That includes everything. Everything you do, every word you speak, every deed that you enact in your life, verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You're like, Lucian, that is not the answer that I was looking for. That is not helpful. Like I said, I'm not trying to be coy about this, but this is what scripture shows us. 
in a New Testament sense, in a Jesus sense, in a new life sense, in a grace sense. We know that when we fall short of God's glory, we've been forgiven. Our sins are washed away. That's why we come to the table of communion, to remind ourselves of this constantly, of this new life that we have, of Jesus' grace given to us, of power given to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You realize that Jesus operated in partnership with, in humility and uh, 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 accountability to the Holy Spirit as he, as he walked this earth. 100% God, 100% man, blows my mind. Don't know how to fully grasp that, but what I do know is that he operated under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we, like we learned on Wednesday, that the Holy Spirit is the seal, the marker of our salvation, we operate in the same way that Jesus did. That in everything we do, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus told his, his disciples, I have to go away. They didn't want him to go away. They wanted him to be the conquering king of Israel right then and there, which he could have been. But that wasn't the plan. Instead, Jesus says, I have to go away so that the comforter can come and advise you, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You and I live our lives in Christ under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. So that when we, when we come to that fork in the road, when we come face to face with temptation, when we come face to face with the challenge of the truth of God, we have the counselor, the Holy Spirit in us that convicts us of what? Sin and judgment and righteousness. So that when we're confronted with sin and temptation, we're able to compare what, what we know godliness is, Jesus, to everything else that the world might present us and be able to determine and say, ah, I need to follow Jesus' example in this situation. So that whatever you do, in word or in deed, every word you speak, every action that you enact, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That everything I'm doing, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. I'm just trying to love like Jesus. I'm just trying to forgive like Jesus. I'm just trying to be holy like Jesus is holy. I do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not like you're walking around going, I buy this gas in the name of Jesus. You know, I'm buying groceries in the name of Jesus. That's not the concept. The idea is, is that Jesus' name is attached to my identity in everything that I do. I'm trying to be like Jesus in everything when we believe upon Jesus, we're told that we have been predestined to be conformed to his image. God determined that's how our life should look, like Jesus, including the works that he predestined us for, which are the works that Jesus did, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, that, that's, a, that's a big lead up if you will, to the thing I want to leave you with today. And I want to blast through this pretty quick, so don't worry about turning pages. Just take notes for me, okay? It's easy or, or it, it it's perhaps is uh, convicting to speak about what the good works are. Yes, you should be in fellowship. God tells us not to forsake the gathering together of ourselves. Yes, you should give all of your life, including your possessions and your time and everything, to the Lord so that he could use it as he wills. 
Yes, those things are true. And yes, there's all kinds of behaviors that we could define and say, that's like Jesus, that's not, right? We could do that and define good works in those ways. But rather than spend the time doing that, I want to offer to you rather the motivation for why we should seek good works. Why is it that we should bother with those things? Yes, I get the predestination thing, but grace, 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 grace. Yeah, I don't like your interpretation of James chapter 2. I think grace covers everything. Love covers a multitude of sins. God loves me so much that even if I didn't do the good works that I was predestined for, he's going to accept me anyway. Maybe. Maybe. If you're, if you're a gambler and you're good with that and you want to throw that dice, go for it. I, that's, I'm not taking that bet. I'm not a gambler, number one. But number two, I ain't risking my eternal soul for the chance to somehow do something in the flesh in opposition to what God has called me to just because it's fun for a moment. I'm called to a higher standard in those things. But let me, let me do this. I just want to give you several points that hopefully are motivation for us to say, here's why we should pursue good works. Here's what happens as a result of us doing good works. Take note of these things. Number one, number one, we should pursue good works and, and do good works because it is an assurance of our faith. It's an assurance of our faith. Mark down and take note of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Good works produce an assurance of our faith. 1 John chapter 2 verse 4 says this. Whoever says, I know him, meaning Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. This, I love verses like this because you can't get mad at me. I like saying things like this. I like it because it's like strong and bold and it makes a statement. But if anybody wants to get mad at me, this isn't me. I didn't have to come up with this. Like, number one, God said it. It's his word. He spoke it through John. You got an issue. Go talk to John. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You want to be, people ask the question in regard to faith all the time, how do I know I'm really saved? How can I be confident of my salvation? Do the works that Jesus did. That's it. If you've heard the gospel, you believe in Jesus, you want salvation, and you want to be sure of that salvation, do the works that Jesus did. There's a story of an old priest who, who uh, lived with a group of younger men, and he was discipling them. They were serving the poorest of the poor. And, and I mean, they were, they were poor themselves. They lived in poverty. They had no earthly possessions. And they were just there serving poor people, street people, serving food, taking care of medical issues. This was their mission. And, and a rich man saw this priest and his, and his little community of guys there and was just like, wow, that is serious. Like, what is motivating them to want to do that? And so he came to the priest and he said, hey, I want to learn your doctrine. What is it that you're teaching these guys that causes them to do this? Like, I want to know what, what it is that you are teaching them. And the priest very wisely told the rich, rich man, he says, come and live with us in the way that we're living, and you'll know the doctrine. That's a powerful paradigm. Oftentimes, when your faith is in doubt, what are we told to do? Go back to the first things. 
John would say in the Revelation, or Jesus would say through John in the Revelation. I have this against you, that you've lost your first love. Repent, therefore, and come back to the things you did at first. Man, when I first believed in Jesus, I was excited. I didn't care who knew about it. I wanted everybody to know I was a Christian. I wanted to do everything that church was. I wanted to help. I wanted to serve. I wanted to bless people. I wanted to go to Bible study. That's where my faith was at. And then down the years and down the road, ah, six o'clock on a Wednesday, that's tough. I got other things going on and now I got to worry about the things at home and I'm not, yeah, and my job and then the relationship and the investment and ah, the things of God, the things of God, they're important, they're great, but mm, they take a lot of time. They take a lot of my resources away from me. They take humility. And we wonder why people come to what they call a crisis of faith. I don't even know if I believe anymore. Well, Go back and do the things that you did at first. Do the works of Jesus, and it will prove your faith. Number two, what good works do for us and why it's important for us to do them. <coughs> Mark down Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Good works in us doing them encourage other Christians toward greater acts of love. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day referencing the day of the Lord, the coming judgment. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. When we we pursue the works that God predestined us for, the good works that come from believing upon Jesus, his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness, it encourages other Christians to do the same thing. Good works in us produce an assurance of faith, number one. Number two, good works in us encourage other Christians toward great acts of love and service as well. Number three and number four come from the same scripture. Mark down Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two. Doing good works in us, number three, Proves the doctrine of God as our Savior. Proves the doctrine of God as our Savior, number three. And number four, silences critics of biblical Christianity. Good works in us prove the doctrine of God as Savior, number three. And silences critics of biblical Christianity, number four. Titus chapter two, verse seven. Show yourself in all respects, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our 
Savior. When we pursue good works in our life, it simply proves the fact that we've been saved. It proves that God is a Savior who changes our lives through his grace. And it silences critics of Christianity. It's one of the great challenges of the modern age is for us to prove that we love Jesus, not by, not by how many people we can get into a room and how large our gatherings can be, but what are we actually doing to improve the life of people around us? What are we doing to help the communities that we live in? That's a huge piece of the puzzle that unfortunately the evangelical church, especially in the United States, has missed out on. And we could learn from other traditions where they put this, the focus on serving other people, especially those who are poor and in need. That's not a social gospel by any stretch. It's the gospel that we are called to love and good works, including charity. Number five, the last point we want to make here is from Jesus' own words. John chapter 15, mark it down. Doing good works in us glorifies God and his love for us. When we produce good works, when we pursue them, we have an assurance of faith. We encourage other Christians toward greater acts of love. We prove the doctrine of God as Savior. It silences critics of biblical Christianity. And number five, good works they glorify God and his love. Mark down John chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. It says, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says that if we follow his commandments, if we follow the things that he tells us, that he instructs us to do, then we're going to live in and abide in this love that he has for us. And that glorifies God. What is the chief end of man? What is our purpose in all of life? It's to bring glory to God. It's to glorify him. That is our job. Good works can get subverted. The focus can be wrong. The attention can be in the wrong place very easily. And yet we're told in scripture that the, our purpose is to do the good works that God has prepared us for in Christ Jesus. And so the requirement is to learn about Jesus, to know him, to believe upon him, the one whom God has sent, and then conform ourselves to him, to look like him and do the works that he did.